As you're opening your Bibles this morning, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 7. We are resuming our study of the Sermon on the Mount. We've got just a few more weeks of study in this particular passage together. But if this is your first time with us, we want you to know we're going to help you get jumped right in, okay? This sermon, uh, this whole series that we've taken the majority of the year going through these chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 have been this time when Jesus sat down with his disciples close to him and crowds from all over and all different walks of life there around him and explained to us what life is like and what we should expect from those who claim Jesus as our king what it's like for us to be kingdom citizens. We've seen the Beatitudes. We've seen that following Jesus is not just about external religion, but instead it's about making sure that our hearts have been transformed by Jesus and what he's done, and that that then manifests itself in the way that we live. We've talked about the priorities of prayer and of giving and of fasting and of looking at all that God's doing around us. And here as we're coming into chapter 7, again, we've seen the idea of asking and seeking and knocking, that we're seeking God's face and seeking his will, and that God promises he will grant what we need. It's been a pretty incredible year for me as we've gone through it. I have loved looking at this this in depth. So I I don't know about you guys, but I'm excited about this. Now, this passage, I'm going to be honest with you has a very special place in my heart. I've talked to you guys often about how awesome my parents are and how godly they are. And they were always really good parents, but truthfully, they weren't always godly parents. In fact, I didn't start going to church until the summer before my fourth grade year. I was nine years old. My grandfather was a Church of Christ elder, and I'd been to a Church of Christ baptism, and frankly, it was just weird, right? Like, these people were in these white dresses, they walked out in the middle of Sinking Creek in Blacksburg, and they dunked somebody under the water, and then they started singing this weird song that I'd never heard, and uh, by the way, it was that the old Alleluia chorus, that, uh, the, you know, I'm not even going to do it, um, but you guys, where all you just do is repeat Alleluia, right? Well, for a dude who's never been in a church building, it sounded like they're like, you know, doing some kind of a weird incantation over this person in a white dress. It was just really weird. I had no idea who Jesus was or what, what was going on. All I knew was that my buddy, who actually went to the Wesleyan Church in Cambria, his family was at church all the time, and my family was. And so the summer before my fourth grade year, I said, Mom, why is it that Sean's family, his name was also Sean, I said, why is it that Sean's family goes to church and we don't? God used that simple question to prompt mom and dad and Uh, In summer of 1992, we found ourselves sitting in Main Street Baptist Church here in Christiansburg under the teaching of Pastor Pete Duplessis. Uh, Yeah, Randy knew Pastor Pete. (laughs) Sitting under Pastor Pete. And I'll never forget the very first sermon that I heard, a sermon that God used to begin the process of drawing my mother to himself. My dad was saved, but he'd gotten away from the Lord. My mom wasn't saved, and at 33 years old, she heard that there were two different paths that you could be on in life. Shortly thereafter, my mom gave her heart to the Lord. My dad got rededicated, and by October of that year, God had drawn me and my brother both to him. This is a special passage for me. Since the very first one I ever heard preached, wasn't going to cry. I don't really know why I am. (laughs) But I've had the privilege when we started going to Zimbabwe on mission trips. The first time we went, they said, we've got a a gospel presentation we want you to use with people. It needs to be simple. 
needs to be straightforward. It needs to be something you can use a stick and draw out in the dirt because you're not going to have papers you can leave with everybody. You're not going to have a bunch of tracks and things. It needs to be something simple. It's this one called the two paths. So I had the privilege of taking the passage that was the very first sermon I ever heard preached, flying on an airplane, going to a different continent, driving on a big, wide, paved road for hours until you hang a left. You hang a left into this village, and there's a fairly wide dirt road that goes through the village, and then you hang a right, and that becomes a cattle trail. (laughs) It's a little more than that as there's a road that you wind for about 30 kilometers. For a couple of hours, it takes you about two and a half hours to make it about 36 kilometers back through this rutted-out road where we then would park the land cruiser and start walking from homestead to homestead on a narrow, winding footpath to be able to sit down and say there are two different paths for the world. There's a broad path, and there's a narrow path. So from a really nice, pretty church building in Christiansburg, Virginia, to the dirt outside of a mud hut in Zimbabwe, There's a message that carries us through every piece of this. There are only two paths to walk on in life. And Jesus is going to make that clear for us this morning. Now, I know that as I'm looking around the room, I know most of you guys pretty well. You've been in church for a long time. You've probably heard this passage before. You're familiar with it. You're comfortable with it. Hear it again. Because as we're going to see over the next two weeks, one of my biggest fears is that somebody would sit here and say, you know what, my mom took me to church as a kid. My grandmother used to kneel by her bedside every night and pray for me. I know that I'm a Christian. And realize, never come to the point of understanding that they are still on the broad path because they have never entered through the narrow gate. So my challenge to you, for those of you who grew up in church, you grew up with a mom and dad who loved Jesus, you've heard this over and over again, my challenge for you today and for everyone, whether that's you or whether you've never heard this before, my question for you is, have you come through the narrow See, we've talked over and over again about this idea of being in the kingdom of God, and we've often shared for you the gospel and how you can follow Jesus. But this morning, that's the main thing we're focusing on, is how do you actually get in to the kingdom of God? So read the passage with me, and we're going to try to take some time to, to break it apart. Starting with me in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he says this, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Now, just looking at those two, we see that there is a contrast between a broad road that leads to destruction, a narrow gate that leads to a difficult road that leads to life. So my challenge for you as we break this apart is to understand that you have to come through the narrow gate to enter the kingdom of God. 
In fact, we're going to break this down into three fairly simple, straightforward points. Now, I'm going to use a lot of Scripture today to help you see how this fits with everything that the Bible is teaching us about what it means to follow Him. So the Scriptures are going to be on the screen. We may go through some of them fairly rapid. But my hope and prayer is if you're here today or if you're watching online, that, that as you hear this, you will understand you must come through the narrow gate to enter the kingdom of God. There is no other way. In fact, that's the very first thing that we see this morning. There is only one way into the kingdom of God. There is only one way into the kingdom of God. Look at verse 13. He jumps straight in and says, enter through the narrow gate. Again, Jesus is reversing our expectations, just like he's been doing through the entire Sermon on the Mount. If you've been with us, you've known over and over again, he's been talking about flipping what the the Pharisees, what the religious leaders thought was important and showing us that it had to start at the heart level and not just be about the things that we do, but actually who we are having been transformed by who Jesus is. As he's gone through that, he's doing this one more time because as we're talking about gates, remember that in those days, your cities would have walls with massive gates. Massive gates were where all of your business transactions took place. When the, the, the city elders or the village elders would come together to decide legal matters and when they would sit to help issue judgments, those things took place at the city gate. Now, remember, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who's coming, and he's bringing the kingdom of God, so you would expect him to set up shop in the main gate of the city, right? You would expect him to be front and center in the middle of everything that's going on, but instead of being and talking about coming into the kingdom through the broad main gates of the city, he's talking about coming in the back way, entering through the narrow gate. He's reversing our expectation. He's contrasting that narrow gate with the wide gate and the broad road. He says there are a lot of people who find this road, but those who stay here will never enter the kingdom of God. Instead of life, those who travel the broad road are heading to destruction. In fact, putting this together with what we see about other things in Scripture, we can say confidently that anyone who is on the broad road is not a follower of Christ. They are not saved, they do not have life, and they are headed to destruction. Well, Sean, how do we get on the broad road? How how does that start off? I mean, you know, if, if I know I'm headed to destruction, I don't think that's where I want to start off. Well, believe it or not, all of us actually start life on the broad road. That's the default position for the human heart. That's why David would say in Psalm 51 verse 5, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. From the very moment I came into existence, I have had a sinful nature. I have had a bent towards selfishness and doing things my own way. We've got some little kids in here, and we've got some great parents who are here with the little kids. Now, I can guarantee you that these parents are never sitting down with their little kids and saying, you know what, Junior? Here's what I want from you. When you're hungry, I want you to throw yourself to the floor and scream and kick and hit and bite. When you break something, please don't tell me the truth. Blame it on anyone else, the cat, the dog, your sister, the sun, the moon, whatever. Just come up with something. Now, no parent does that, right? But every child does. 
I've told you before about, actually, it was that buddy, Sean, whose family used to go to church. He and I were at my parents' house, and we decided we wanted to eat uh, lunch in our bathroom because it was, you know, like I said, it was built in the early 90s, right? So actually late 80s. So it's black tile with red carpet, okay? Swanky. So in that bathroom was cool, right? So I wanted to eat lunch in the bathroom because we were weird, we were boys, whatever. So we're going to sit there, and Mom said, okay, you can go in there, just don't spill your drink. She, of course, gave us red Kool-Aid. What did I do? Spill the red Kool-Aid all over the red carpet. Probably should have left it, actually. That probably would have been the best course of action. But instead, I was smart enough to clean it up with white striped towels. Sean left. Mom and Dad said, did you guys spill your drink? Uh, I don't think so. I never could, like, it took me years to figure out how mom and dad figured out that we had spilled the drink. And then it dawned on me one day, the towels were white, you moron. Your mom's going to notice a big pink stain in the middle of a white towel. My parents never taught me to lie or to cover stuff up. But inside me, from the very moment I was born, I was born with a sinful nature. By the way, that's the thing, guys. People are, by nature, born sinners and evil. We're always going to choose to do what's selfish. We're going to always choose to be greedy. That's how it works. By the way, just in case you weren't born that way, the reality is all of us have chosen to go that way too. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. All of us have turned aside from the direction that God wanted us to go. So even if you weren't born in sin, like you go back to Adam and Eve and you say, well, if I had been Adam, I never would have eaten the fruit. Yeah, you would have. Let's be honest, guys. You can't not eat the ice cream that's sitting in front of you today, right? Like you would have eaten the fruit. So that, because we've chosen to go our own way, That's put all of us on the broad path. The Bible says on the broad path, we're headed for destruction. Life on the broad path is characterized by some really unsightly attitudes and actions. See if this doesn't sound like our world right now. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, outline it saying, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry. Remember we said idolatry is anytime we put anything above God that we put, put anything at that highest part of our heart. Sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Boy, none of that sounds familiar, does it? Haven't seen any of that in the news this week. I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If the general course of your life looks like that list, it's very clear that you're on the broad path and you will not enter the kingdom of God. That's not me making a judgment call. That's what God says in his word because there's only one way into the kingdom. By the way, that doesn't mean that everybody out there is blatantly throwing their lives away and and blatantly living in gross immorality and all these kind of things. As we've said last week when we were talking about the issue of idolatry and and how we make idols out of all kinds of things, we take good things and we make them God things, which makes them a bad thing. 
So we can have all kinds of good ways that we think we're headed and all kinds of good things that we think we're doing, like pouring ourselves into our family, but we put our family above God. Or pouring ourselves into our job, but we put our job above God. Pouring ourselves into our fitness or into our comfort or whatever, and we put those things above worshiping and serving and honoring the one true God. And when we do, all that does is lead us further down the path of destruction. That's why the writer of Proverbs would say it this way, there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right. If you talk to people who are clearly falling headlong on the broad path, they're not always going to make it sound like they're trying to run some kind of rock and roll lifestyle to run it into the ground, you know, and all this kind of stuff. No, often it sounds like they're trying to live a life that's good and trying to leave a legacy and trying to make a difference and all of these kinds of things. But if it's directed anywhere but into a relationship with Christ, then it's leading to destruction. may seem right. It may even earn you respect and admiration. But if your primary pursuit isn't the kingdom of God, then you are heading for destruction. So every single person who's been born on this earth starts out on the broad path. We see it in the way that we act, the way that we react, the way that we live, and we even try to fix it, but it keeps leading us further and further and further down the path to destruction. There's only one way into the kingdom. How do we get off of the broad path and into the narrow path? How do we go through that narrow gate? Jesus outlined it for us in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The idea here is you're almost to your exit. How many of you guys have ever had that moment where you're driving down the interstate and all of a sudden you realize you're about to miss your exit? You've got to make a hard right. Some people seem to do this for sport, right? They want to see if they can make it from the left lane. For you this morning, and I I don't care whether you think you're in the far left lane on this, today I want to encourage you, this is your exit. This is where you get off. If you've been living on the broad path for your entire life and you're tired of it, you're ready to follow Jesus and you recognize you're in the wrong place, this is your exit. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's time to get off. Okay? How do you do it? He says you repent and believe in the good news. Let's take that a piece at a time. Repent is one of those big churchy words that you don't ever use outside of church, right? The idea of repentance, we often refer to it as a turning around, and that's part of it. But repentance actually starts with the heart. Repentance is when I look at who God is, and I see that he's explained that I'm supposed to do all of these things to honor him, and, and, and I look at my own selfishness, And and I see that gap between who God is and how great his love is and how selfish I am and how prideful and how arrogant and how dumb I am. When I feel that difference and I feel that weight, my heart breaks under the weight of that. Then that leads me to turn around. See, if I'm on the broad path headed for destruction, if I'm living in idolatry, sexual immorality, if I'm leading in envy and anger and all of these things, if that's the direction I'm heading and God shows me that it's wrong, then what, he's got to, what I need to do is let that break my heart and stop doing that and turn to honoring him. If I'm going the wrong direction, then I need to turn to go the right way. That's what repentance is. It's not some magic-y, churchy word. It's letting God break your heart and in response, turning and changing and not living that way anymore. 
So repentance is that idea of when I see that my heart is sick and sinful and turned away from God, I look at God, I see where I'm headed the wrong direction, and I turn back the right way. So to come in through this gate, first thing you've got to do is repent. You've got to be willing to turn from and turn to. But there's a second part about believing in the good news. First off, what's the good news that we're believing in? Well, the good news is that although you were headed to destruction, God loved you so much that he would send his own son to die on the cross for you. And he was so good that when he died on the cross, he actually was able to be raised from the dead to show that he had defeated death, he had defeated sin, he took your destruction in your place and offers you his life instead. That's the good news. Well, cool. I know that. Does that mean that I'm good? No. See, there's all kinds of people who know all of the facts about the Bible. They know facts about Jesus. They know that he died on the cross. You sang about him raising from the dead. So yeah, I've heard all that. I know all that. That's cool. When the Bible talks about believing, it talks about transferring your trust. To stop trusting in what you can do, to trusting in what Jesus has done for you. All right, I'm going to use an illustration. We've used it before. But let me do this, show you this way, because I like visuals. I'm going to try not to break David's guitar. Cool. David just flinched. It's okay. You can breathe. It's over here. You're good. All right. So as we're looking at this chair, okay, I'm going to ask you some questions about the chair. They are simple. They are straightforward. The class heard me do this last week, so there are already steps ahead. Do you believe that this chair exists? Okay, if you're a normal, rational human being, you do. If not, let's talk. Um, Do you believe that this chair could hold me up? Okay, good. Why is it not holding me up right now? Because I'm not in it. I'm not sitting in it. This is how people often approach Jesus. They know that he exists. They might even believe all these things that he did. But they're not actually trusting him for anything. Now, they might from time to time, right? Like, you know, hey, getting close to the end of the month, and I'm not sure if I'm going to make all my bills. So, God, would you, would you help me to, to make all my bills, and, and would you take care of my finances, and then make it through the, the tight squeeze? It's like, all right, cool, God, thanks for that. You know? Or, or maybe going on a long trip, and like, God, I, you know, the interstate's crazy, so would you just keep me safe as I drive, and, and, you know, would you take care of everything? And then when I get back, I take that thing back. When Jesus says to repent and believe in the good news, what he's telling us is to put wholehearted trust in what Jesus has done. Now, if this chair breaks, I'm going down. For those who may not be able to see this at home, my feet are totally off of the ground. I have my hand on nothing else. There is nothing I'm relying on to keep me from falling but this chair. That's the picture of what it means to believe in Jesus. This is not just kind of a temporary thing that we do a little bit when we feel like it, but rather it's a wholehearted trust, a a transferring of my trust on everything I am to everything Jesus is, and if Jesus fails, I fail with him. Does that make sense? That's how we come through the narrow gate, by repenting and believing in the gospel. Paul would explain it this way in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Remember that word, Lord? We don't use it very often except as like a a slang or a cuss. Um, The word Lord means leader, boss, guide, the one who's in charge, the one calling the shots. If you confess confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. That's how you come into the narrow gate. Now that's pretty simple. But here's the second thing we find out about this narrow gate. It's not easy. Again, there's a big difference between things that are simple and things that are easy. Some of you guys have been in the weight room before, and you know what, how to deadlift. Deadlifting is very simple. You bend over, you pick it up, and you stand up, right? Now, if I say, go deadlift 500 pounds, the vast majority of you would not be able to do that. Sure, it's simple, but it's not easy. In the same kind of way, following Jesus is very simple. So simple that as a nine-year-old boy hearing the gospel for some of the very first times, God drew me to himself and I was able to put my trust in who Jesus was by Jesus' grace and his goodness and his mercy. It's that simple, but that doesn't mean that the way to follow Jesus is going to be easy. Now, we miss this sometimes around here in the South because we can come to church, we can call ourselves a Christian, and a lot of times it doesn't require us to sacrifice much. For the most part, people at work or at school, they don't really care about you being a Christian just so long as you leave them alone, right? You don't run into a lot of animosity where people ridicule you for following Jesus, although sometimes you may. For the most part, they'll leave you alone. You're not going to go to prison for following Jesus. You're not likely to have a mob kill you for being a Christian. But if you're really a kingdom citizen, if you're actually following Christ and more than just giving it lip service and more than just coming to church because you know that if you want to own a business, that's the best place for you to get a book of business together and make your contacts for your sales. If you're going to do more than that, there are parts of the Christian life that get extremely hard. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Crosses are cliche for us. We got a handful of them in the room, scattered up the building. Some of you may even be wearing them on your neck. It's easy for us in a world of gold cross necklaces to forget that the cross was a humiliating instrument of torture. The Romans could have killed you a a bunch of different ways. When it came to Paul, they simply beheaded him. I say simply because that's actually a relatively humane way to execute someone. Instead, they tried to devise what was the most humiliating and excruciating way to kill someone. You know, we usually, you see Jesus hanging on the cross and he's usually got a loincloth on they would not have afforded him that luxury in real life. He would have been completely naked, bloodied, exposed to complete and total humiliation as he hung and died. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he's not just talking about wearing a cross necklace or a Pura Vita bracelet or something that's got a cross on it. He's talking about identifying with his death of dying to yourself 
of saying, my way of life doesn't keep going. I I can't keep chasing after my dreams because that led to destruction. I can't keep doing things my way. But instead, I'm going to choose every single day when I wake up to die. It's kind of like marriage. Not that you're choosing to die when you get married. Correct that. But you know what? When I got married, some of you are like, well, you don't know. Okay, we'll we'll talk about that one later. When I got married... There was a day where I stood up in a church and I said, I'm going to pledge my life to Samantha for the rest of my life till death do us part, right? But then every single day, I'm presented with multiple choices and opportunities through the day where I have to choose her again. Where I have to choose to stay faithful, choose to honor her, choose to love her, choose to do those things. In a similar kind of way, I make that decision at nine years old when Jesus drew me to himself. I came in through the narrow gate, but every day, as Paul said, I die daily. I have to die to what I want every single day. I have to sacrifice my needs, my desires for the kingdom of God all the time. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And I'm not special, by the way. I'm saying that's what it is. For those of us who follow Christ, it's a continual death to self. But beyond that, it's not just a death to self. We also see this persecution that comes from the outside. There's the internal struggle of following Christ. But go back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. There at the very beginning of this sermon, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The expectation for kingdom citizens is that life is going to be hard. There will be an internal struggle in identifying with Christ, putting to death your old ways of thinking, and honoring Jesus in difficult moments. And there will be outside pressures of persecution of people who are not following Jesus who are going to try to make you stop. It's going to happen. It won't be easy. Boy, Sean, you're quite the salesman this morning. Well, think about this. I don't know about you, but... If I were ever to be diagnosed with cancer, I truly wouldn't want my doctor to sugarcoat anything. I'd want him to look me in the eye and tell me this is going to be bad. I want to know going into it what to expect. Many of you are probably the same way. I I was laughing because I I was talking to somebody who was talking about they're in the medical field or they were talking about when they have to pack somebody's nose and the, that they tell them that they're going to feel a lot of pressure, okay? That's a lie. This is not pressure. This is pain, okay? I don't do you any service by sitting up here and telling you that following Jesus is easy. It's a lie. Following Jesus is very, very hard. Following Jesus and walking on this narrow path, on this difficult road, is really, really hard. There's going to be moments where you're like, God, I don't even know if you exist. I don't know if you're real. I don't know if you've saved me. I I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand. It's going to be hard. But it will be worth it. When I was in high school, I had the privilege of going up to Maine for a few weeks right after I graduated. 
I knew that the end of the Appalachian Trail was in Maine. I had done some hiking around here. So the man that I was with and I said, well, why don't we just go ahead and try to hike the end of the Appalachian Trail? It's only a 5.2-mile hike from the, the base of Mount Katahdin up to the summit. Okay, for those of you who haven't ever hiked much, 5.2 miles one way is kind of a lot, okay? Second, there's a 4,000-foot elevation change from the base to the summit, okay? We were woefully unprepared. I remember they had marker, like distance markers along the trail, and I remember us walking and talking and saying, we've probably gone about a mile, don't you think? We'd gone like not even a half of a mile when we said that. It was insanely difficult. But the view from the top of that mountain was unlike anything I've ever seen. You know, that's something I've found in life. Often the most difficult paths that you're called to walk lead to the most beautiful views. This one is absolutely the case. As difficult as it's going to be to follow Jesus, it will lead to the greatest view because it's the only way into the kingdom of God. Now, as we're talking about why it's so hard, one of the reasons it's so hard is the last thing that we look at here this morning, and that is that not many will find their way in. There's only one way into the kingdom, and it's not an easy way, and because of that, not many people are going to find their way into the kingdom of God. Let that sink in for a minute. The overwhelming majority of the world will not enter into the kingdom of God. This is one of the most offensive things about what we believe as Christians. In 2020, when, when we're supposed to be accepting and tolerant and allow everybody to you know, follow the light you've got, just be sincere, there's multiple paths, they all lead to the same place, that's not true, guys. The Bible says there is only one way and there aren't going to be many who find it. That's why I challenged you at the beginning. You may have grown up in church, but but just because you grew up in church doesn't mean you're on the narrow path. There's not many who are finding that. That doesn't lead us to some kind of elitism. It should lead us to break our hearts. This should crush us and devastate us that those around us are looking at spending an eternity in separation from God. Not even God is excited about that. God's holy and he's just. How can I say that? Here, listen, Ezekiel chapter 33, as he's talking about warning people who are sinning and and the need for repent. God said to Ezekiel to this. He said, tell them as I live. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should, wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? God said, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. I would so much rather that you repent and come in through the narrow gate. So we don't say this with some kind of elitism of, I'm the one who made it in and you're not. Look at me. Well, we don't sit there and say, well, yeah, absolutely, let them go to hell. We say this with hearts that break 
Because if it were not for the grace of God that put me in Main Street Baptist Church in 1992 to sit under the teaching of Pete Duplessis and hear the gospel, I may not have ever been saved. But because of God's grace, for some unknown reason, he allowed me to be born and placed in a time and space where I would hear about who Jesus is and be given the opportunity to respond. And he drew me to himself. Unfortunately, not many will find their way in. God isn't sitting in heaven smiting people with lightning bolts because he loves to torment people. In fact, God loves us so much that he would go to extraordinary lengths to even open a gate for us at all. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we said we don't deserve anything from God, yet in his goodness and his grace, here's what he did. Familiar first to many of us, John 3.16. God loved the world in this way. This was how God demonstrated his love to the world, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. All of us start out on the broad path, and yet because God in his love and his mercy and his grace cares for us, he made a way available for us to come in. That way is Jesus. He didn't have to save any of us. We all deserve to keep running headlong into destruction. Yet in his mercy and his kindness, he drew us to himself. He saved us. In the grand scheme of things, though, there are not going to be many who come through that gate and find life. So what do we need to do in response? The first thing you need to do personally is truly, honestly, before the Lord, evaluate whether or not you have ever come in through the narrow gate. Have you ever turned from your sin and turned to following Jesus? Not because your mom took you to church, not because your grandmother prayed for you, although those are wonderful blessings that can point you in the direction of who God is. But have you personally turned from your sin and turned to following Christ? You need to seal and settle that. You can do that right here this morning. Again, borrowing from what we'll look at next week, you may have been a church member your entire life. You were on the cradle roll, for those of you old enough to remember that. You were on the roll before you were ever born. But if you've never surrendered to Jesus as Savior and Lord, you are still on the broad path. No matter how pretty your life looks, no matter how many titles you've held at church, no matter what you've done, if you've never surrendered to Christ, you are not saved. Today, though, you can be saved. The exit's right here. Are you willing to turn? Are you willing to trust? If so, then just take a moment where you are and just tell God that. God, I need to turn from my sin. I need to follow you. I need you to forgive me. I want you to be Lord, leader, boss of my life. Others of you know that you've come into a relationship with Christ, but to be honest, you've really stopped standing up for Christ and trying to fight against sin because it was hard. You got tired of it. It's going to be hard. John Maxwell says, anything worth doing is always uphill. 
Following Jesus is going to be difficult. He warned us about that. He said, the the gate is narrow and the way is difficult. So don't expect it to be different. Instead, ask God for strength, for endurance, for grace to stay faithful. It took, by the way, as we're thinking about how hard it is to follow Jesus, remember how hard it was for Jesus to open that door for you. It took him leaving the glory of heaven that he rightly deserved, coming to earth, walking among us, and then ultimately dying on the cross. If you're here, you're not dead yet, so nobody's tried to put you to death for following Jesus. Jesus sacrificed more for you than you could ever begin to sacrifice for him. So as hard as it may be for you, keep in mind that you've got a God that you're serving who's been through it before. Even if you and I were called to die for Jesus, if we were beaten and we were crucified in an exact replica of what took place to Jesus, we would never be in a position of bearing the sins of the entire world on our shoulders like Jesus did. If he would do that for you, you can honor him by walking this difficult road. Here's what's beautiful, by the way. When I look around the room, You're not walking alone. Now, again, in a room this size, it's highly likely that there's somebody here who doesn't yet know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. But the majority of the people in here, I believe, have a genuine relationship with Christ. You're not in this by yourself. You've got others around you. It's funny, I wrestled with this message really hard this week. I had a friend text me this morning telling me he prayed for me on his way to church. And I had two different men at different points this morning say, hey, has anybody prayed with you this morning about the service? And they pulled me aside to pray. Maybe it's because there's somebody that God's trying to communicate. The exit's right here. You need it. Take it. You guys know me. I'm not a doomsday kind of guy. I don't get totally worked up about events in the world around us because we've said for a long time that Jesus could come back at any time. Here's what I do know. We're one day closer today than we were yesterday. Now, I don't know. It could be another thousand years before Jesus returns. He could come back before the day is out. You don't know how many more opportunities you'll be given, how many more times you'll get to hear the gospel before you respond. So let me challenge you. Lean into the pain. Pick up the cross. Tune out the critics. Honor your king.